can no longer afford to worship the God of hate, bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. History is cluttered with the records from nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. As Arnold Tornby says, love is the ultimate force makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil. Therefore, the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word, unquote. We are now faced with the fact, my friends, that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, that is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at flood, it ebbs. We may crowd desperately for time to pause in her passage. Time is adamant to every plea and rushes on over the bleached bones and jumbled residues of numerous civilizations written the pathetic words too late. That is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. Omar Khayyam is right to move in finger rights and having writ moves on. We still have a choice today Nonviolent coexistence, a violent co-annihilation. We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world, a world that borders on our doors. We do not act. We shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Now let us begin. Now let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world. This is the calling of the sons of God, and our brothers wait eagerly for our response. Shall we say the odds are too great? Shall we tell them the struggle is too hard? Will our message be that the forces of American life militate against their rival as poor men, and we send our deepest regrets? Will there be another message of longing, of hope, of solidarity with their yearnings, of commitment to their cause, whatever the cost? The choice is ours. And though we might prefer it otherwise, we must choose in this crucial moment of human history. That invocation by Dr. King, I want to wish you and welcome you on this cold, chilly evening in Houston. A really warm, welcome place with warm hearts and, thank goodness, warm heaters. My name is David Leslie. I'm the director of the Rothko Chapel. 
And I want to let you know how graced we are to have you with us tonight and for those who are watching on the live stream broadcast. For the chapel's annual Dr. Martin Luther King birthday observance and celebration. One little order of business, if you'd be so kind to silence or turn off your cell phones, we greatly appreciate and refrain from recording tonight's program because in doing so, you heighten the sacredness of this space and the meaning of our time together. Since its opening in 1971, the chapel has been an important pilgrimage destination, welcoming visitors from all over the world seeking solace, respite, and renewal within the walls of this transformative sanctuary. In addition to this space, complete with the magnificent artwork of Mark Rothko that invites introspection and spiritual exploration, outside on the plaza is Barnett Newman's Broken Obelisk dedicated to the living legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which invites us to strengthen our commitments to further justice, peace, and equity. So here at the chapel, every day we experience the powerful synergy between contemplation and action. And it's in this spirit that we present the 2024 Martin Luther King Birthday Observance, Public Health Epidemic of Gun Violence. Mindful of Dr. King's commitment to create a more equitable society through engaging in nonviolent tactics, tonight's program provides the opportunity for us to learn to, or to revisit the, the physical, psychological, and spiritual impacts of gun violence and to delve into our collective responsibilities to address this critical epidemic. Given that gun violence in the United States, mindful that this is a country with the highest gun ownership per capita, is an entrenched public health issue that impacts Americans across demographics and geographies. As such, we have no option but to face the epidemic head on. As no one is immune from its debilitating consequences, and no one is exempt from doing all they can to reduce the number of gun deaths and injuries in this country. Tonight here in this place, at this moment, we are privileged to convene an intersectional dialogue between physicians, organizers, survivors, parents, and artists who have dedicated to sharing their experiences and using different mediums to further the movement to end gun violence. I want to thank all of our speakers for being here this evening. Some have made a long trip here, so thank you, and navigated icy roads, which we really appreciate that. And I also want to lift up a very special note of appreciation to artist Sandy Kennedy and her team for creating the memorial installation on the plaza that poignantly lifts up and names the impact of mass shootings in this country in 2023. Uh, Sandy, I know you're in the back. Do you mind just standing up and waving so we can uh, see you and give you a big thanks? Now, putting on a program of this importance and magnitude involves a lot of very talented people and organizations, including DIA, the Asian American Foundation, Young Center Houston, the former Houston Coalition Against Hate, and the local organizations here tonight with tables in the back of the sanctuary 
including Houston Moms Demand Action and the League of Women Voters Houston. Please be sure to take a moment if you have the time to stop by and learn a little more about their efforts on your way out tonight. Finally, I want to recognize my colleagues at the chapel, particularly Kelly Johnson and Ana Martinez and our public programs team, and all the staff and volunteers who steward this remarkable place, making sure that it is indeed open to all and keeping us mindful of and engaged with issues that really matter. So with all of that, it's again my privilege and pleasure to welcome you to the Rothko Chapel this evening, and also now to welcome to the dais Swati Narayan, who will introduce tonight's keynote speaker. Swati is the director of AAPI Community Safety and Belonging at Daya, in partnership with the Asian American Foundation, and is a leader and a strong advocate for all things related to peace, justice, and equity. Swati. Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Dr. King died by the gun. He was assassinated on April 4, 1968, nearly 56 years ago. He is one of America's most famous victims of gun violence. At the time of his death, he was an avowed pacifist who evolved his stance on gun ownership at the face of overwhelming threats of violence and death directed to him, his family, and all who worked with him in the civil rights movement. Years before his assassination, Dr. King was a fearful gun owner, desperate to protect himself and his family. But over time, he understood that fear was both a tool of the oppressor and a deeply internalized trait of white supremacy against which he would fight until his dying death, until his dying breath. This not-so-famous quote from Dr. King signals a critical point in his evolution on the subject of gun ownership for self-defense. I was much more afraid in Montgomery when I had a gun in my house. When I decided that I couldn't keep a gun, I came face to face with the question of death, and I dealt with it. From that point on, I no longer needed a gun, nor have I been afraid. Had we become distracted by the question of my safety, we would have lost the moral offensive and sunk to the level of our oppressors. King was well aware of the data on guns in homes, that mostly people who kept guns in their homes used them on themselves and or their family members. It was the same then as, as it is now. People shoot themselves or their loved ones intentionally or unintentionally far more regularly than they do intruders, tyrannical governments, or even hateful white supremacists. The statistics are harrowing. 120 Americans are killed every day with guns, and domestic intimate partner violence accounts for many of these deaths. Every 12 hours, someone is shot and killed by a current or former intimate partner. The presence of firearms in an abusive relationship can make an already dangerous situation worse. Access to a gun makes it five times more likely that a woman will die at the hands of a domestic abuser. Over 4.5 million women report having been threatened by a gun by an intimate partner 
and almost one million women alive today have been shot at or threatened by an intimate partner, have been shot or shot at by an intimate partner, and that is just in the US. Nearly two-thirds of intimate partner homicides in the United States are committed with a gun, and that number is increasing with a 15% uptick between 2011 and 2020, with black, indigenous, and Latinx individuals at the highest rates. According to the Texas Council on Family Violence's 2022 statistics, the nexus between gun violence and domestic violence in Texas is particularly alarming. In 2022 alone, intimate partners killed 216 Texans. This includes 179 women, 37 men, six LGBTQ victims. Of those, 96% of family members, friends, and bystanders were killed by a firearm. 100% of those injured were shot, and 18 of those perpetrators had identified firearm prohibitions. The number of women a male partner killed has also nearly doubled in the last decade. These figures emphasize the urgent need for a paradigm shift in our approach to addressing these interconnected issues. Our moral imperative becomes even more pronounced when we consider the disproportionate impact on vulnerable populations, especially women and children, who often bear the brunt of such violence. We are also seeing a concerning connection between rising hate and the surge of gun violence in America. Divisive ideologies have contributed to acts of hatred, coupled with the ease of access to firearms, have led to an increase in violent incidents. The full scope of hate crimes involving firearms, however, extends far beyond high-profile shootings. Every day, more than 28 crimes are committed more than 28 hate crimes are committed with a gun, and the number of hate crimes that law enforcement reports to the FBI is at an all-time high. Weak gun laws at the federal level and state level enable people radicalized by identity-based hate to commit deadly acts of violence against vulnerable communities. The trends for domestic violence and hate-based violence are eerily similar. These are complex challenges that require not only our attention, but our resolve to change the status quo. It is crucial to advocate for comprehensive policies that address both domestic violence, hate-fueled incidents, and gun access. This includes supporting measures such as background checks, firearm relinquishment orders for individuals with domestic violence protect restraining orders, barring individuals with domestic barring individuals with a history of committing hate crimes from accessing firearms, and increased resources and support for survivors seeking assistance. By aligning our values with principles of compassion and nonviolence, something Dr. King espoused, we can work towards reshaping societal norms and ensuring safety and well-being of those affected by the intersection of domestic violence and gun violence in our communities. At Thea Houston, where I work, compassion is not only in our name, and literally speaking, as it's a Sanskrit translation of the word Thea, but it is embedded in the ethos of our culture as we support survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. Inspired by Dr. King's legacy of nonviolence and equity, we champion measures that promote dignity and safety for survivors of violence, envisioning a society where compassion triumphs over animosity. 
just as he envisioned our collective commitment to dismantling the root of violence and hate, is not merely a call for change, but a moral obligation. In honoring our shared humanity, we strive for a safer, more harmonious existence, a testament to Dr. King's enduring vision for a world free of violence, where love, understanding, and justice prevail for the well-being of all. Dr. King's philosophy, deeply rooted in the principles of nonviolent resistance, was indeed about love and understanding. However, it was also, and crucially, about the relentless pursuit of justice. He was not just an advocate, but an activist, but a disruptor. His mission was not merely to dream of a better world, but to actively dismantle the oppressive systems that denied that world to so many. Much like Dr. King, David Hogg has been a disruptor in the violence prevention space, in the gun violence prevention space. Thrust into the world of activism by the largest school shooting in American history, Parkland survivor David Hogg has become one of the most compelling voices of his generation. His call to get over politics and get something done challenges Americans to stand up, speak out, and to work to elect morally just leaders, regardless of party affiliation. Passionate in his advocacy to end gun violence, David's mission of increasing voter participation, civic engagement, and activism embraces a range of issues. On February 14, 2018, David's life changed forever. As a senior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, he lost friends, classmates, and teachers. A total of 17 people were killed when a lone teen gunman spayed bullets from a high-profile military assault rifle. David's eloquent responses to America's largest school shooting immediately placed him in the national and international media spotlight. Committed to becoming an agent for change, he resolved that no other young person should have to experience the tragic impact of gun violence. He joined with friends from high, from high school to co-found March for Our Lives, now one of the world's largest youth-led movements. Five weeks after the shooting, March for, Our Live, Mo March for Our Lives mobilized one of the biggest demonstrations in the nation's history with an estimated 800,000 participants. Since then, David's activism has taken him around the country, meeting with impacted families and diverse communities to deepen his knowledge of gun safety and the politics of ending gun violence. With his younger sister, Lauren, also a student at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, he co-wrote Never Again, a New York Times bestseller. David and Lauren also contributed to the best-selling book, Glimmer of Hope, How Tragedy Sparked a Movement, a compilation of writing from the founders of March for Our Lives. So without further ado, I introduce Mr. David Hogg. a lot colder in Houston than I thought it would be. Um, I spent four years of college studying history. And whenever I come to a new place, I often think about what, what history does, does this city have to offer to the conversation and how we end gun violence and how we can use that history is a guide. 
to bring us towards a better future, where hopefully uh, conversations like this will not be necessary anymore. And one of the things that I thought about is what role has Houston served in America's history? And the first thing I thought of was that it is a city that solves problems. Only two years after Dr. King was assassinated, the astronauts on Apollo 13 called to one city when they needed help. And they said, Houston, we have a problem. And I'm here to reiterate the same words, but for a different problem that we face today, gun violence. And it's not just the mass shootings uh, that dominate our headlines. It's not the every, just the instances of everyday gun violence that occurs. It's also the two-thirds of gun deaths that are suicides, that are preventable in this country, that far too many of us have been touched by. And I have to believe that in this city that has been able to solve problems literally out of this world, that it can also help to solve this problem. And I know that we're going to hear from some people with a lot more expertise than me in terms of credentials uh, to talk on that later today or later tonight. I also wanted to reiterate how we get out of this problem, or at least some ideas of how we get there, by leaning on some of the principles that I learned early on in my experience with activism. Shortly after the Parkland shooting, we went to Chicago, and we met with young organizers on the south and west side of Chicago who had been organizing to stop gun violence for decades, and they were our same age but had never gotten the same attention uh, at all, despite many of them losing multiple family members and many more friends than we had lost on one day. Because what happened in Parkland happens almost every day in their community, and it doesn't get the same attention or resources. And it's not to say that Parkland doesn't deserve the resources or attention that we got. It's to say every community, no matter its color, no matter how wealthy it is, no matter which way it votes, deserves that same attention. One of the young people that we met with that day was named Alex King. And Alex was our same age, and like I had mentioned, uh, had experienced far more gun violence and lost far more people than any of us had uh, that day in Parkland. And the first thing that Alex told us, what he taught us about, was he gave us all a bunch of dog tags that had six principles on them. And they said, this is the framework that we use to combat gun violence in our community, even though we have so few resources. And those principles were the six principles of nonviolence that Dr. King taught about. And to remind you all of them, the first one is that nonviolence is not for the faint of heart. When I started out in activism, I remember I was just going on the news because I didn't know what else to do. My sister was 14 years old when the shooting happened. She lost four friends that day. And for the first time in my life as her brother, there was nothing that I could do to make her feel better. There was nothing that I could do to bring her friends back. The only thing that I could think to do was to use my past four years in speech and debate and TV production, where I had learned about the news cycle, and I had also learned about the issues related to gun violence and spent four years arguing on, on both sides of them. I felt that was the only thing I could do. And when we went out there, many people, of course, were very inspired by us and were like, absolutely, we, need, we should do something. We have to do something. But there were also many who thought that we were paid actors by the FBI here to take everybody's guns, right? 
And that is a testament to how Americans view our education system. The fact that we believe, many people believed it was more possible for us to be plants of a government agency than the fact that our education system actually did its job is shameful. Because they thought we were scripted because we had actually paid attention in class and we had good teachers. Because Parkland was what, my school, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, was one of the best schools in our community and it had some of the most resources. And with those conspiracy theories came death threats when I was 17 years old. And that wasn't just limited to me, it, was limit, and it also went to my family, even to my own mother. And that's why it's not for the fate of heart. But we also have to remember why we're doing this. I think it's easy to forget that behind all these numbers there are people. And we need art demonstrations like we have outside to remind us of the enormity of this problem. Because what you see out there is only a tiny minority of the gun violence that happens in this country on a yearly basis that is only getting worse. And one of those stories that I've had to remind people of over the years, especially those who come up to me and say, David, gun laws just don't work. Criminals don't obey laws. And it's like, well, that's the definition of a criminal. You're not really saying anything. I remind them that after Parkland, when people told us that we couldn't change any gun laws, that we actually did. We went to our state capitol and demanded that they change gun laws, and we passed a red flag law that enabled us to disarm people that are at risk to themselves or others. We used the law, that law, to disarm somebody who sent a death threat to my own mother, an NRA supporter, that said, F with the NRA and you'll be DOA. Because of the law that we, as a bunch of kids, after Parkland passed, despite what many adults thought was possible, it may have prevented me from having to bury my own mother. This work is not for the faint of heart. The second principle is that nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice and not people. The challenges that we face are much greater than Wayne LaPierre at the NRA, as great as it was to see him be forced to resign because of the work that March for Our Lives started doing in 2018, and a letter that we sent to Tish James with some really fantastic tax lawyers about how the NRA was spending their money. Hot tip, don't spend 501c3 charitable donations on private jets and Italian suits. Um, the point of the matter is there's always going to be another Wayne LaPierre unless we address the root of what created him in the first place. And part of the way that I've done that is I've actually gone out and talked to a lot of the people who don't agree with me. And you won't see this on the news a lot of the time because these people obviously don't want to be seen you know, talking to a gun-grabbing communist or whatever they want to call me. And in one of these instances, I was actually, after the, uh, after the Nashville shooting, I thought to myself, what else can I be doing that I have not been doing? Who else can I be talking to that I've not been talking to to change this issue? Because I grew up around guns in my house. Many of my family members are conservative. I understand their talking points. I've heard them every Thanksgiving my entire life. So I actually went to a shooting competition and I joined the shooting club at my, at my college. And I talked to the students there about gun safety. And I was worried, of course, that it would trigger my PTSD that I have from the shooting. But thankfully, because of you know, whatever factors in the ear protection, it didn't. But I still went out there because I felt it was so essential for me to talk to the people that did not agree with me. Because even, I, I don't think it should be on any survivor 
to go out and have to do that. But I felt I was in a very privileged position as somebody that is known to a lot of these people that is fear-mongered to by the NRA and a lot of other people to go and talk to them. And when I was out there about an hour into the competition, the coach who did not do very much coaching of the team came up to me. And he's about, this guy was a professional like Olympic skeet shooter. And he's 6'4", probably 275 pounds, ripped. Comes up to me and is terrified, like looks terrified. And he's like, why, like, why are you here to, to take my guns and everything? And I'm, I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean? And he's like so hostile towards me and clearly afraid. And I said, look, I'm here because I think you probably assume some things about me. And there are probably some things that I may assume about you, and I don't think either of those fair. And I'm tired of debating this and tired of doing nothing about this. That's why I'm here is to talk to people like you. While you may not agree with me on how to, how to address gun violence in some ways, like you believe that everybody should have an AR-15 or be able to have one, for example, I think we probably can agree that we need more mental health funding for the two-thirds of gun deaths that are suicides. And we shouldn't be acting like hatred and racism is a mental illness. We shouldn't just be talking about mental illness when it's a white mass shooter and we don't want to talk about the fact that this country has a serious problem with white supremacy and hatred. And through that conversation, of course, we didn't agree to everything, but I've had so many conversations like that, that every time when you interact with somebody like that that is so hostile and afraid and you simply listen to them, even if you're not agreeing with them in the first place, it may not be enough to convince them of your position entirely, but it's enough so that they don't see you as a mortal enemy that is here to destroy their entire livelihood and life in the first place, but you're simply a human being that doesn't want school shootings or gun violence to continue anymore. And that may be an unconventional approach, of course, but I think we have had so many different approaches and tried for so long with this that we have to try everything that we can, and I have to try everything that we can. And through that conversation, he ended up agreeing with a lot of what I said. And that's because I didn't attack him as a person. I didn't go up to him and say, you're, you're responsible for all this happening. You're a terrible person. You suck. Because there's always going to be a million other people like that. And that's what they're assuming you're going to say to them. Instead, when you, when you say to them, look, I can respect that you don't agree with me, but I can't accept the fact that there's nothing we can do to address this. Even if it's a small thing that we're working towards, even if it doesn't completely end the issue of gun violence, even if it just saves one life, that is progress. And we have to learn how to work together because this brings me to my, the third principle, which is the, that the fact that the goal of nonviolence, part of it, is reconciliation. We have to realize that we live in a country where many people vote other ways than we do, and it doesn't mean that we have to completely tolerate them or everything that they say. And in fact, we should work to organize and work to make sure that Obviously, we win as much as possible, but we all live in the same country, and we have to learn to at least live with all, some of the people that don't agree at times with us and realize that's part of what it means to live in a democracy. Of course, there are limits to that, right? There's a certain nuance that comes with that in the first place, but simply disparaging other people is not what is going to end gun violence in the first place. The fourth principle is that redemptive suffering holds transformational power. Naturally, if you're going to be a nonviolent movement, there's going to be a certain amount of suffering that comes with it in the first place, and it's awful. I've seen it destroy many, many people, especially younger survivors, that got involved in this because they felt like they had to commit their lives to this, and unfortunately burned out because this is not for everybody, right? But even if you can contribute a month, a couple of days of your time 
over a couple of years, or even if it's just one year, that's okay. Because you can know that I'm here doing this work when you can't, and I can know that you're here doing the work when I can't. Because it's not on any single one of us. And we have to get over this very individualistic sense that I think we have of social movements, in part because of, although he's amazing, obviously, in part because of the, the storytelling that we have in our history, of how it's the great men of history that really change things. And MLK is obviously amazing, but we, what you don't hear about a lot of the time are the women, the black women of the civil rights movement that really powered it that helped to make it possible. And I see this happening again and again, even in the movement of gun violence prevention, where the movement has been powered for decades by people like Erica Ford, who've been doing violence prevention for 20 plus years at this point, and are now retiring, but have never gotten the attention or the credit that they deserve in the first place. But we have to realize sometimes there are errors in our storytelling because it's not on any single one of us in the first place. You know, I appreciate the comparison to MLK. I am not MLK. I am far more imperfect and probably much worse at spelling and clearly worse at speaking. But I think collectively all of us can represent some amount of that greatness because all of our imperfections end up evening out when we work together. And we can make up for those imperfections because none of us are. But collectively, we can work together to move our society to a better place. But it requires each and every one of us being part of that and realizing, contrary to what many of us thought in 2018, unfortunately, this is not going to end in one election cycle. It's not. It's going to take decades of work. The key to the success of this movement is not how much can we raise in the next quarter for a political campaign, although that's very important. It's how much can we build up the next generation to ensure that they have the stamina to be able to continue the race that we've all started, but many of us will not, probably not live to finish in the first place. But we know it's possible, thankfully. And we know it's possible because in America, America uniquely has a level of gun violence that is far higher than almost every other, pretty much every country in the world, to be honest with you. And in the other countries that do have high levels of gun violence, such as Mexico, 90% of the guns that are used there and recovered in crimes don't come from Mexico, they come from America. Which then drives the instability of that country, which then drives migration of refugees that the United States is responsible for creating in the first place, which then drives xenophobia in America, which then drives gun sales. The fifth principle pertains on that topic to nonviolence pertains to not getting physically violent, obviously, or having the internal thoughts. And that brings us back again to realizing that our enemy here is gun violence. Even though there are other people that we think represent that at times, as much as I don't like Wayne LaPierre, as much as I don't like Dana Loesch or any of these other people, they are all symptoms of the problem that we have here. Right, which is the collective psychosis our country is in that makes us believe that we have to stay here forever. And you know what empowers that is the same thing that is the greatest threat to American democracy. It's not Donald Trump. It's the same thing that empowers people like him. It's hopelessness. And I see this when I go and I, I work on political campaigns and I knock on people's doors. I met a young, uh, not, she wasn't very young anymore, but I met, I met a 70 plus year old woman named Helen in uh, either Norfolk or Suffolk, I forget. I was knocking a lot of doors that day. And I told her about this campaign I was working on for this guy who was running, and 
a staunch advocate to preventing gun violence in one of the most competitive races. And I said, you know, are you going to vote in this election? This is one of the most competitive races. And you know what she said to me? She said, no, I'm, I'm just not going to vote because all politicians are corrupt and nothing's ever going to get better. You know, I hear a lot of the time this, this over and over again that young people just don't care about politics, that we are the problem in our political system. And I think we share some of the responsibility, but we've been around a lot less long than a lot of people. And it's not to say there's any sole generation that is responsible for this by any means. There are many people of all generations that have been working on this for decades. But we have to address the fact that that hopelessness is the single greatest threat to our success as a movement and the single greatest threat to American democracy. Because if we believe things will never get better, they never will. And that is what the NRA thrives on. That is what so many other people that are standing in the way of preventing gun violence thrive on, is the belief that we can't do anything about this in the first place. And certainly if Dr. King can go out there and take a stand, and frankly, and many people forget this, be as unpopular as he was in his day when he was alive, which was extremely unpopular because he was extremely controversial, and he can go out there and make as much change as he did and push this country that much further, along with the tens of thousands of black women that really helped to push it further, certainly we can address this issue the same way every other country has as well. And the reason why I know this is because I was just in one of those countries. I was just in Japan about three days ago. And when I was there, I saw, I was in a toy, there was a toy store that we were at, and I saw on the window of this toy store, a bunch of toy guns, AR-15, a handgun. But guess what? They don't have school shootings there. And I don't think it's because they have lower rates of mental illness than Texas does. I don't think it's because they don't have doors that open outward. I don't think it's because they have cops in every single classroom. I think it's because they have insanely strong gun laws in that country. Because it turns out gun laws actually work. Is any law perfect? No, but guess what? We still have laws for a reason. The final principle that I wanna leave you with is that the universe is on the side of justice. We have to remember that when we're in this, when we're at our most exhausted, that the universe is on our side. We are advocating not for somebody to make more money through profits and gun sales or anything like that here, unlike many people who are against us who have direct profit incentives not to do that, like good old Wayne LaPierre who is making millions of dollars and living in a mansion uh, because of his massive grift off of uh, scared gun owners that they continuously did. We're fighting for each other. We're fighting for each other. We're fighting for the future children of this country. And we're fighting for a future country that Hopefully, one day, speeches like this can be history and not you know, headlines, necessarily. And shootings can be in our history books and not our headlines, because we actually stood up and did something in the first place. Because we stood up against the slander that says there is nothing that we can do about gun violence, because we realized we woke America up from its paralysis on this issue by turning to cities like Houston and calling them on them once again to help solve our problems, which all of you are here helping to do, whether it's with Moms Demand Action, violence intervention programs, researchers, doctors, or, or activists. We're all part of this massive coalition here, and the greatest threat to our success is believing that moments like this, conversations like this, that nothing is going to change. Because the reality is, not only is that a major threat, it's also false. Things are changing. 
And the reason why I know that is because when we started in 2018, we were told politicians just can't talk about gun control. They can't. It's a losing issue. And we said, okay, we're going to make it a winning issue by going out there and registering tens of thousands of young people to vote across the country. And guess what we did as a group of teenagers, most of whom at the time, including my sister, could not even vote. We defeated more NRA-backed politicians than ever before in American history because we had the audacity to hope, because we refused to listen to those that said that we couldn't, because we remembered our friends like Joaquin Oliver and so many others that died in the shooting. Because we fought for that, we won. And the reason why I also know that we're winning is because I spent four years of college and the two main things that I did aside from studying history and occasionally missing some readings was talking to the White House about creating an Office of Gun Violence Prevention from my dorm room and also being on kitchen cabinet calls for March for Our Lives first national organizing director, Maxwell Frost, when he was running for Congress against 10 people, including a former member of Congress who was also a hedge fund manager at the same time. You know, just like the peak of what we're dealing with here. And guess what? Maxwell, despite being a young adopted person, despite being one of the first Gen Z people to run for Congress, despite all of these factors going against him, he won. And now Maxwell is the youngest member of Congress. And you know how Maxwell got involved in activism? It's because when he was at a band recital, or after a band recital that he was at, when he was in, uh, I think it was early in high school, he looked at the TV and he saw the Sandy Hook shooting and the headlines from it afterwards, and he was stunned. And he was so shook that he asked his parents that year to help give him money to go to the first national vigil for victims of gun violence in D.C. when he was just 15 years old or so. He had been working in the movement to end gun violence for over 10 years when he decided to run for Congress. And now he is a product of this movement, the first person of my generation in Congress is not only a Gen Z person, obviously, but also a member of March for Our Lives, a product of this movement in office. And I got to see Maxwell, Congressman Maxwell Frost introduce the President of the United States at the Rose Garden for the creation of the first ever White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention. And that candidate that I was campaigning for, where the women said, I don't care, voting just doesn't matter, guess what, he won. And the next time I saw him was when he was at the White House, because he's now the head of the Gun Violence Prevention Caucus in the Virginia State Legislature. And he, there was a massive convening of state legislators at the White House to talk about how to combat gun violence, meeting with the directors of gun violence prevention. That is the power of what we're doing here. And it doesn't mean that gun violence is going to end tomorrow. But we know that the start of the, the beginning of the end has started today because of the work that we're doing now. So thank all you all for doing that. And now, and that, that's, that, those are my remarks. Appreciate it. Hey everyone, I'm Jeff Temple. I am the Associate Dean of Clinical Research at uh, UT Health, um, Department of Psychiatry, and our new School of Behavioral Health Sciences. Uh, you know, I was sitting there 
and people kept coming up and saying hi to David, and no one would say hi to me. Uh, whatever. Uh, someone also said, actually, the, the woman sitting behind Mr. Hogg right now said, you're a really important person to this. And then the first speaker compared him to MLK. And, and I hate to say it, but it, it kind of is falling on you. And it's not fair, but it sort of is. And uh, uh, you're, you're responsible for a lot of the, the good that we've had in the, the past several years with respect to gun violence prevention. In fact, I, I uh, uh, you know, a little uh, uh, celebrity here is as I, as I do talks on I uh, mentioned how much smarter this generation of youth is than the previous generation. You know, they have, everyone complains about smartphones and social media and says that these kids are all messed up. But I would use David and his friends, I would have that on, on all these stupid PowerPoint slides and say how this is the real generation. This is the generation that has had the world at their fingertips, all the knowledge in the world that will make a difference. So thank you, David, and thank your friends. Uh, one of my favorite King quotes is uh, when he said, the ultimate tragedy is not the cruelty and oppression by the bad people, but it's the silence of that by the good people. So thank you all for being here and not being silent. Thank you to the Rothko Chapel for not being silent. Uh, thank you for, for giving us this space, letting me, a researcher, talk about the science. David mentioned that uh, it, gun violence can be prevented. Suicides can be prevented. We know how to do it. We have the resources to be able to do it. We know what laws work. And he mentioned, you know, uh, mental illness a few times. And as a psychologist, that's really important to me how every time there's a mass shooting, everyone talks about, well, it's a crazy person or we need more mental health funds. You know what? Give us all the funds for mental health. As a psychologist, I want it all. We're under resource there. But it's probably not going to do a whole lot to. Uh, curb everyday gun violence or mass shootings because uh, it's it, people with mental illness are way more likely to be a victim of gun violence than a perpetrator. They represent a very, very small percentage of gun violence perpetrators. Uh, and like David mentioned, there's mental illness in Japan and Australia and England. There's violent video games in all those places. We know what it is, right? It's the guns. Sure, it is. But we're also realist. And so what can we do if we have these things? We can, uh, what we can do is, uh, is prevent violence in the first place. So I have a prevention program. We, we test prevention programs in schools and we try to promote healthy relationships and make better people, right? We want to make better people, healthy relationships that not only will prevent violence, but will prevent uh, you know, uh, substance use and promote relationships and not just prevent violent relationships, but actually have ha happy, healthy relationships. All right. All right. I'll shut up now and bring the panelists to the stage. Uh, before I do that, I want to say one other MLK quote that, that I hope that this drives this presentation. It's on his statue in D.C. that out of a mountain of despair, we hope to bring you a stone of hope. And so please join me uh, David Hogg up here, who is the co-founder of March for Our Lives. Please. My gay, very good friend, Mr. Carlton Harris, executive director of the Forgotten Third. Another friend of mine, a surgeon at UTMB, Dr. Biddy Nayak-Mathiria.
And so my new friend, uh, who I'm going to uh, do some scholarly work with her mom, who is he also here, and I found out that she uh, is interested in the same stuff that I'm interested in. So look for some, uh, uh, well, actually, I don't know. Is your last name Mata? or? Okay. Well, Temple and Steel Papers coming out soon. So uh, Kimberly Rubia, can you please join us on stage? And for those who don't know, uh, Kimberly uh, ran for mayor uh, and didn't win, but she's a future state representative, as I, as I learned tonight. Uh, and more importantly than that is Lexi's mom, who was a victim of the Uvalde shooting. So thank you again for welcoming us. I'm going to sit down now, and we're going to have a nice conversation. Thank you all. All right. Uh, so I am going to start with the person directly to my right. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you don't mind, the first time that y'all, uh, especially the new, the new folks, David and I can, don't have to do this, but the new folks, just t say a little bit more about uh, who you are and what you do when it comes time to talk. And the first question for you, Bendy, is why or what is the benefit of situating gun violence and gun violence prevention within a public health lens, an epidemic, so to speak. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, so just as a quick introduction, I am a, a surgeon, a pediatric surgeon, um, and I've taken care of many, many children injured and killed by guns. Prior to that, I uh, worked right here at Ben Taub, where I took care of many, many young adults injured and killed by guns. Um, I've been working with, the, fortunate to work with the mayor's office here in Houston and chairing the uh, Commission Against Gun Violence, and I do some research on gun violence prevention. It's something I'm very, very passionate about. So why is it a public health issue? Well, if you, if you haven't heard, um, guns are now the leading cause of death in, for children and adolescents and young adults. So leading cause of death. I spent my entire life taking care of kids and trying to save their lives from cancer, from you know, from diseases, from things like that. But this is guns that's killing them. And so if that's not a public health issue, I don't know what is. Um, the, uh, the incidence has risen steadily since 2015 every single year in pretty much every state in the country. And so that's what makes it an epidemic. So yes, it is a public health epidemic. It affects the health of our children and our adults. It affects all of us. It affects not just physical health, it also affects mental health, as we all know. Um, and it's not just something that happens in the bad neighborhoods anymore. It's everywhere, uh, unfortunately, because of mass shootings. Um, it's very multifaceted. And just like, you know, cars are dangerous as well, but we live with cars every single day. So guns aren't going anywhere in this country. We have to live with guns. But there are ways to make it safer, just like, we, you know, uh, car crashes used to be the leading cause of death, and now they're not. And so um, there are ways through research, through advocacy, through policy, through uh, common sense, through being responsible gun owners, et cetera, to uh, mitigate this public health crisis, but we have to call it what it is. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I'll also say with respect to science and research is Bendy was also one of the beneficiaries of the few research funding that has, uh, has gone to uh, gun violence. And I, I'm really bragging on her to say that I also was one of the recipients to 
uh, get that grant. So, so hopefully we'll get more. So one of the interesting things about the public health epidemic of gun violence is if you look at it and you compare it to things like cancer or heart disease and the amount of funding that has gone into those things to prevent it, to treat it, uh, the amount that has gone to gun violence is, you know, less than a half percent relative to those in, in what you would expect for funding levels. Uh, the publications and research publications, again, are about one percent of what you would expect given the number of deaths relevant to, uh, relative rather to other public health crises like cancer and heart disease and diabetes and so forth. So uh, anyone else have anything to say about the public health epidemic of gun violence? David wants to. I would love to hear more about what you guys do. Thought I was a moderator, David. <laughs> well, I, but that, but that, no, you know what? That's the thank you for saving me from myself. <laughs> Carlton, go ahead, please. Good evening, everyone. I'm Carlton Harris, founder and executive director of the Forgotten Third. We're a community-based nonprofit organization that work with uh, primarily uh, perpetrators of gun violence. Um, some have been victims as well. Um, I'm formerly uh, the Youth Violence Prevention City Lead for the City of Houston, where I oversaw our Houston Peace Strategic Plan for five years. And when you're looking at the public health approach to violence prevention and gun violence prevention in particular, you know, you have to look at that social ecological model, right? That model that says that we have to work with individuals first on that individual level. And then from the individual level, you deal with relationships, and then community, and then societal. But we have to make sure that we take a public health approach to this because we want to, number one, define the problem. A lot of us in the room know what the problem is, right? But step two is just as important, which is how do we identify these risk factors and increase the protective factors to offset the risk factors that lead the young adults into gun violence? You know, and understanding the, the community that they come from, a lot of these young men that I work with, they're in survival mode, right? We look at the, the economics in these underserved communities and we don't understand the contributing factors that, you know, contribute to, you know, them believing that they need to pick up a gun. Uh, I just had a question and a conversation with a young man the other day in our program and he was talking about, you know, his love for guns, and I had to ask him, why do you love guns? Why do you think that you need a gun? He said, well, Mr. Carlson, everybody in my neighborhood has a gun. So if I don't have a gun, I don't feel safe. I don't feel protected. And so really not condoning their reasoning, but being in a place to understand the risk factors that occur in the underserved communities. And then also knowing the protective factors that we need to implement to help offset those risk factors, such as equal opportunities for job and employment, um, also access to health care, also looking at mentorship programs, um, like I'm a credible messenger, someone who's been through the justice system and has been out nearly 24 years that can provide my life's examples and say, listen, I've gone through what you've gone through. I've been both a victim and a perpetrator of gun violence. Now, this is a different lens that I want you to look through in order to become successful, to step back from the violence that you feel as though you need to engage in. And then step three in the public health approach is really, you know, testing those strategies, right? Putting those strategies to work. Put those preventative uh, strategies that we know that have been called evidence-based, right? That we know that work. 
We know what to do, but we need the, the funding and, and the resources to be able to implement them in the community. And then the last step of the public health approach is assuring widespread adoption, right? How do we make sure that all the communities are adopting these strategies that we know that work? Because we know what work, but the problem is that the resources aren't getting to the communities where the crime is high at, where the violence is high at, and then it, if I'm not given an opportunity, you tell me to put my gun down, but what are you telling me to pick up? What, what, what opportunities are you giving me? Are you giving me access to post-secondary education opportunities where I can get a skill or a trade? Are you giving me access to employment opportunities and higher education where I can go and pursue a degree of higher learning? So when we look at the public health approach, yes, gun violence is an epidemic. It really is. But also, we need to make sure that we're taking realistic steps and putting together a plan that's going to be effective to help the victims as well as the perpetrators become successful and get out of that mindset. Because everything that we do originates from a thought. Everything that we do originates from a thought. Our actions are manifestations of our thoughts. So, but our thoughts are framed by what we see and what we hear. So if I'm seeing gun violence every single day and I'm hearing that I need to have a gun every single day, it's going to create a thought in my mind that I need to have a gun, and then guess what? It's gonna manifest in my behavior of obtaining a gun. So let's put something different before the eyes and the ears in the community. That way we can transform the thoughts and then therefore the manifestation and the actions will be much different. Man, Carlton, I love that, and uh, I really do. And it reminds me, you know, of, of what we talk about is providing livable wages is violence prevention. Uh, affordable housing is violence prevention. Childcare is violence prevention. Uh, you know, I also want to just really quickly mention that Carlton and I worked together uh, at a time where we both uh, did not have gray hair. So uh, we, we, we've been on this for a while. Uh, Kimberly, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move to you now and uh, af after I ask this question, if you can say a little bit about yourself and then, uh, then answer this question. When we talk about violence prevention and gun violence prevention specifically, why is it important to listen to victims of violence and perpetrators of violence? Why is that so important for this conversation? It's important because I think in America we see the headlines and you see the immediate aftermath and then the media goes away and you're not seeing the, the effects afterward that we're living with lifelong pain. And you know, platforms like this where I can share Lexi's story and where I am in my grief stage and what my community needs, what I need, that's what's most helpful for us. Thank you, and thank you for being here, and thank you for sharing your story. Uh, I can't, uh, as terrible as it must be to have to relive it, I just, I mean, it's so important to this mm -hmm. conversation and so important for us to hear, and, you know, especially for, for people like me who, you know, sees numbers and does that and tries to talk to people and legislators, but to actually hear the real world stuff. And mm -hmm. I'm so sorry for what happened to Lexi and what happened to your family, but thank you for being a voice. Thank you. Um, if you don't mind, I'd love to share a little bit about her. I would love that. <laughs> uh, Lexi is a beautiful, intelligent, competitive, driven little girl. Um, she aspired to be a lawyer, and on the morning of her death, she received the Good Citizen Award. I aspire to be like her, and I hope by sharing her story, 
listeners are encouraged to join the gun violence prevention space. Amazing, yeah. Lexi would be super proud of you. I hope so. She definitely would. Uh, thank you, thank you so much. David, if you, if, if you wanna add to, to that in terms of talking to victims and, and, uh, and perpetrators too uh, about uh, this issue and why it's important. Well, I think, I think it's really important to understand when it comes to violence, there's two aspects. There's, in order for a violent incident to happen, you need to have two things, intent and capability, right? You need to have the intent to kill someone, and you also need to have the capability to do so. And in many countries, there are people with plenty of intent to do it. They don't have the capability to do it nearly as easily as they do in this country. And that includes countries with a lot of guns as well, like Switzerland, where they have a highly regulated system around it, which was part of what the original Second Amendment was based off of in the first place. And I actually met with the Swiss ambassador to the United States, who is the founder of like Swiss Special Forces and their equivalent of the CIA, to talk about this. And he said, it's ridiculous that you guys, that the NRA keeps using Switzerland as an example of why we don't need to strengthen gun laws. The exact reason why Switzerland doesn't have strong, doesn't have nearly as much gun violence is because we have a strong system and an actually well-regulated militia. And it's BS that they keep using us as a talking point. Um, I think we need to also acknowledge the fact that simply addressing why, how somebody is able to get a gun is not enough at all. It is part of the pro it is part of the answer, but we have to address why, as you mentioned earlier, why are they picking it up? When I work in, when I've worked with violence intervention programs in the past in a, basically an intern capacity where I go to Erica Ford, for example, who does similar uh, work in Jamaica, Queens, and New York City, and I say, okay, I don't understand anything about what drives gun violence in Jamaica, Queens the way that you do, so use me as an intern. You want me to move chairs for you for this meeting between perpetrators and victims' parents so that there's less retaliation, I'll do that. You want me to go and drive a car around for you to help meet with like at-risk youth? I'll do whatever you need, I will do it. And the number one thing that I, I learned from that experience is that the top reason why the United States has so much gun violence is not just because of our lack of laws, I would say just as much, if not a, quite a bit more, it's because the communities that are most impacted by gun violence lack the most resources. When I met with the, those young people in, in Chicago who traveled with us across the country and some of whom now serve on our board at March for Our Lives, one of the things that uh, I think it was Trey Bosley, who's our board chair now, said to me was gun violence in Chicago is like if you took two lions and, and put them in a cage together with no food or water. One of them is going to end up getting killed and the other one's going to end up being injured because they just don't have resources a lot of the time. It's important to acknowledge to the roots Dr. King talked about a lot about the, the sources of evil, of militarism, of poverty, and racism. I think those are the same drivers of gun violence as well. And we have to acknowledge that. Our romanticization of guns in this country, frankly, is weird. It's really weird. Even for somebody like myself who has shotguns before and was part of it, it's weird. It is extremely weird. It's not, it's like fetishizing a hammer. It's a tool, like it's weird and we should not be doing it. Because uh, these, these things, we should be treating them the same way that we treat cigarettes, frankly. There is something dangerous that many people are able to use if they want to, but we should have a highly regulated system in place to reduce as much harm as possible uh, in the first place. And then I just wanted to say again, 
the resources component, I, it cannot be understated. The reason why Parkland does not have shootings on a daily basis is not because we have stronger gun laws than the rest of the country. It's because we have more resources than almost every other community in the country. We don't have more cops in our schools. We don't have more cops in our communities. Our median household income is well over $100,000 a year. That in itself is the single biggest, could be the single biggest preventer of gun deaths and suicides in this country. We have to address healthcare costs, we have to address the costs of education, and we have to address the costs of living in this country if we're ever going to fully address all forms of gun violence in the first place. Yeah, thank you, David, so much. Uh, you, you know, and, and mentioning racism and evil, uh, another driving factor is misogyny and uh, hatred of women. And if you look at just the mass shootings, it's about uh, his work by Geller, who's shown that over half of uh, the mass shooters have a history of domestic violence or family violence. And you, get, you could basically look at any mass shooter and see that there is some sort of hatred of women, uh, family violence uh, in, in their history. And then if you look at everyday gun violence, uh, and uh, Swati mentioned some of this, is uh, you, you know, women are far more likely to be killed with a gun. Uh, and I, I think what's also really important is just the mere presence of a gun, even if the gun is not used, is associated with more severe domestic violence. So just the presence of it. All right, so uh, why is this your lane, Bendy? Um, well, when you've taken care, well, when you've had to pronounce people dead in the ER um, because they've been shot, when you've had to tell their you know, parents, their uh, brothers and sisters that they're not coming home, or when you're taking, rushing them to the operating room with your hands inside their bodies trying to save their lives, and then spending months and months and months holding their hand while they sit there in pain, and then send them home to the same dangerous neighborhood that they got shot in, that makes it my lane. What about you, Carlton? Why is this your lane? Uh, it's my lane because of the experience and the life that I live. Born and raised on the south side of Chicago. Um, you know, like I said earlier, what we put before our eyes and our ears enter into our mind, manifesting our action. I was taught at a young age um, that you're not a man unless you know how to shoot a gun. And I remember where my uncle took me in the backyard and put a 38 revolver in my hand. He held the gun and taught me how to shoot a gun. And from that point, I felt in love with guns. And as I sit back and think, I was probably either six or seven years old. I was young. I was living in a rural town called Hopkins Park, uh, Illinois. My grandfather had like a farm and cattle and things of that nature. And from there, um, seeing the, the violence of, of guns in underserved communities on the south side of Chicago, and you needed to have a gun. Right, it was, it was mandatory that you had a gun in order to survive. And that, before my eyes and ears every single day, made me to believe that I had to have a gun. And so when I went to prison, I went to prison for armed violence, being in possession of a weapon while selling drugs. Um, I've been in drive-by shootings. I've been a victim and a perpetrator of gun violence. And later in life, as I matured, I realized that I was being used as a puppet. I was being used as a pawn, that what I was taught was not the truth. You know, and so oftentimes we say practice make perfect, but that's incorrect. Perfect practice make perfect, right? We'll often say that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's also incorrect. If it ain't broke, don't break it, right? And so learning 
growing up that I needed to have a gun being taught this is what's being done a lot and that's plaguing the mindsets of the individuals that are perpetrators of gun violence because they're being taught that this is what they need. This is how you become a man. This is how you protect yourself. I'm now on the opposite end teaching conflict resolution. Let's do restorative circles. Let's sit down and let's talk about it. You know, just worked with two young men in our program. Both of them have uh, friends on opposite sides of the gangs. Both of them were victims of gun violence. Sit down and have a conversation. Look, you guys are not going to perpetuate this on. You, you are young men who need these skills and the tools in your toolbox in order to understand that you don't have to pick up a gun in order to solve a problem. Let's sit down and have a conversation as a man. Let's sit down and look at how can we come together in reason so that we both can go home to our families. And so this lane here is very important to me and it's personal to me because I've seen it. I've had people standing close to me get shot in the head and die. I've, I've, I've witnessed it and traumatized my life where I saw a, a, a triple murder, triple homicide right in front of my eyes, gang related, right? And from that point forward, I was traumatized. So a lot of the young men that we work with in our program, they've been traumatized. But not only have they been traumatized, they've been desensitized. Because you see it so often. I've never forget a young man told me, and he didn't know my story. He said, Mr. Carlson, you don't understand. I see death every day. And I had to share my story to him. I say, I do understand. So again, putting something different before their eyes, before their ears, giving them different solutions rather than picking up a gun to solve their problem is very personal to me, and that's why I'm in this lane. Nice, man. Nice. You know, you mentioned Carlton's always getting claps. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned solutions there at the end, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change gears just a little bit and say one of the most effective marketing, public health marketing campaigns was the uh, anti-smoking, uh, you know, commercials and advertisements that happened. Uh, how can we take lessons from that, and this is for everyone and anyone, that, and apply it to gun violence prevention. You know, just, just uh, uh, I remember after the Santa Fe shooting, which is right next to Galveston, where I live, there was dueling billboards, one that was Santa Fe strong, and the one right next to it was for a gun show, uh, you know, just down the road. Uh, so when you think about, you know, effective public health campaigns like smoking, how can we use that? How can we leverage that for gun violence prevention? You know, when I think about what David just said about, you know, our fetish with weapons, that's a result of the NRA successfully tying gun legislation with the removal of rights. So how do we combat that? How do we correct that false narrative and improve our own messaging? It's something I think about all, every day. Um, I know, particularly in Uvalde, um, the perpetrator used a gun manufacturer that actively promoted weapons with children, images of children with weapons. It's disgusting. I mean, think about it, comparing it back to cigarettes and, and what they used to recruit children to become smokers because then they'd be lifetime by consumers, right? Uh, and, you know, everything from Joe Camel to the cool Marlboro guy and everything else and make it a sex appeal. Sorry, David, I've cut you off. Or Bendy? I was just going to say there is a serious... Uh, economic challenge that we face when it comes to developing the same system. The, the way, I mean, you all as public health experts or anybody else who knows can correct me, but the way that I believe that a lot of those advertisements were funded was by suing the cigarette companies. 
you cannot do that in the United States with very, with basically no exception because of a law called PLACA, which basically gave the gun industry total immunity from being sued by people that have been injured by guns, it, with basically one exception being if the gun malfunctions and in, individually hurts the operator of the firearm. That's it. Um, and that basically has made it impossible for that same system to be used that was done for tobacco. Uh, we also need more research funding. I know the even more specifically the statistic you're talking about, there's a really good NPR article with a chart that shows how much funding that gun violence research gets in comparison to other issues. Sepsis kills about the same number of people every year as guns do in the United States. Sepsis gets over a billion dollars in funding from the federal government. You know how much money last year gun violence researchers got? 25 million, 25 million. You know how many they got in the period of basically 1997 to 2018 when the Parkland shooting happened? Zero, zero, zero. And it was basically illegal for them to do that research to study the effectiveness of gun laws because of something called the Dickey Amendment. We need to fund the research way, way, way more because we're raising a generation of children that is traumatized by gun violence, all of whom in some degree want to do something about it but we are not going to get the next generation of researchers that we need if they don't have the funding to do it in the first place. We have to get that funding. Um, I also think that we need to develop something like the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration for violence prevention uh, from the federal government to be specifically tasked with dealing with this issue in the first place, to study violence intervention programs, to study which gun laws are most effective, and also acknowledge the fact that ATF as an agency has some major flaws, because it's basically like if you took all of the special interests that didn't want to be regulated, and you put them in one agency, and purposely kneecapped it constantly, so it was impossible to enforce those laws. So we hear over and over again, we just need to enforce the laws that we have on the books. Guess what, the number of ATF agents that we have in this country to regulate over 400 million guns is about a thousand more than the number of students that were at my high school the day the shooting happened for 400 million guns, right? We need a better way of enforcing the laws and we need to make sure that we're doing all that we can to understand the issue in the first place. If I can ask something real quick. The system- No clapping after this. <laughs> the system is not broken. The system is operating the way that it was designed to operate. And, and let me give you an example. And <laughs> it, we talk about the tobacco, but let's look at the drug epidemic, right? So when the rock, the crack rock epidemic back in the 80s and the 90s plagued these underserved communities, it was lock them up, throw away the key. Now when you get to the, the heroin or the opioid ad addiction, and fentanyl is, you know what, we need to now put funding behind it for treatment. You know what the difference was? It, it fell on their doorstep. So they were affected more by they being the policy makers, the politicians, the funders. When, when they began to be affected by the problem, then now they want to help support a solution. But when you wasn't affected by it, you didn't care. So. I don't believe that anything is going to be done policy-wise until, and, and God forbid that something tragedy happened, right? But until they're really affected by it and, and see how it really affects their family, 
when they have to be the ones to continually go bury their family members or have drive-by shootings in their neighborhoods because of the economic uh, suppression that's going on, nothing is going to be done. So if, if we're going to do anything for a solution, we have to come together and be the solution because we know how it affects us directly or indirectly. One of the more effective gun control initiatives, and this is actually being serious, is when Black Panthers started to carry guns in open, in public, and it started to affect white people, right? Uh, okay, so I, we have a couple, I, I'm sorry, Bendy, I'm gonna cut you off, but I'm gonna give you an opportunity right here. Uh, we know through uh, you know polls and through public opinion surveys that most Americans, regardless of where they fall in the political aisle, believe in common sense gun control. We know, I mean, it's close to 80, 85%, I believe in increasing the age from 18 to 21. We know that uh, that most people don't like the fact that a 20-year-old cannot buy a pistol, but he can buy uh, an AR-15. I don't know if you all knew that in certain states. So uh, you know, you know, there's some things that we can do that are common sense. So how do we bridge that gap between the fact that? most people, most, most Americans agree with some form of common sense gun control, but it's not happening. How do we bridge that gap? I think that there's, because of the severe political divide on this issue, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And kind of going back to the smoking thing, the, the reason that it finally worked, especially for young people, is by giving them the real facts. And so depending on your social media feed, you're only getting your side, one side of the story. And because of algorithms and all of that stuff, depending on what radio station you listen to, depending on what news channels you watch, you're only getting one side of the story. And so people are not hearing each other. And I think that that's part of the problem. So when you talk about assault rifles, everyone gets so riled up. I personally posted a few things about assault rifles on Twitter, got like, 10 hate mails, I'm sure David gets hate mail every day, but it's so polarizing, right? And I can tell you that, you know, of those weapons, we never see those injuries in the trauma centers. You know why? They don't make it to the hospital. They, I mean, it's, it's a fact, but people, um, they nitpick about the velocity and this and that, and is it an AR-15 versus assault rifle? Like, like, you know, like these little things, it doesn't matter. What I care about is, you know, the people that are getting shot from assault rifles and, and killed. You know, we can save the ones that maybe aren't shot by assault rifles. So, but people, it's just, it's so polarized that the facts are not making it from one side to the other side. And so, yes, a lot of people, even responsible gun owners, may believe that, but then I think it goes back to this fear and, oh, they're gonna take the assault rifles away and after every mass shooting, the sales go way up just in case somebody's gonna come to your house and take them away. Um, it, it, it just it's, doesn't make sense, but you know, neither did not getting the vaccine or not wearing a mask during the COVID epidemic. I mean, I think that that really taught us that there are two sides to some of these really, really hot issues, and it's very, very difficult for people to see both sides because of how polarized our society and I think our media is these days. All right, sounds good. Anyone else want to tackle that? 
I just wanted to add. Yes, please, Kimberly. When you were listing, another thing is social groups, right? Having converse, having those tough conversations with people who don't agree with you, even in your own community. Um, I personally had somebody reach out to me, very conservative, has guns, and he wanted to raise the age from age to 21. And like, how do we have this conversation? And how can I help you? And how can you help me understand? And you know, ultimately, it failed in Texas this last legislation, um, but. It, it was an eye-opening conversation, and it's one I ca I hope to continue having. And I think, sorry, just one more thing. I think the the like the military, the police, um, you know, the gun industry, who uh, gun owners really trust. It's it's going to take I think them to come out because no one trusts doctors anymore, no one trusts public health people anymore. But it, it's going to take them to maybe come out and be and strongly support some of these um, laws. All right, so I want to end on a somewhat hopeful note to go along with what David had to say during his presentation. And uh, I want each of us to communicate why we should be hopeful about this very scary, terrible public health crisis. And, and we'll just go from left to right, and I want to say just my glimmer of hope, why I see it as a hope, is what Kimberly just said, is that it made it to the legislature, but it didn't pass. Well, that's a very big deal. You know, it takes several sessions for things to get passed, and it ultimately will. Uh, it'll probably fail next time, but then the time after that, but it takes work, and it takes all of us, and it takes, again, what Dr. King said, it is not the oppression and cruelty by the bad people, but it is the silence by the good people. So it takes us to be that driving force, to get research proven laws passed. Bendy? Uh, mine is your generation, David. <laughs> it, it truly is. I mean, they're, they, they have grown up with guns. They have, um, they, it's been a part of their lives. And they have people like David and his and his um, friends who have shown that is it is okay to speak up about these and to vote. And they're all turning 18 now, and they're all going to be voting. And um, I think that it's not about party lines, but it's about voting for people who will make the right decisions when it comes to sensible gun laws. And um, that's I, that's the only thing I can see that's truly going to make a a big impact in the future. I think my hope uh, is that, uh, not that Gen Z is especially amazing in any regard. I don't think, frankly, I don't think any generation when they start out is incredible, incredibly more special than any other generation. I think what makes great generations is awful circumstances. I think great generations are not born, they're, they're made, uh, they're a product of the necessity of their time. And I think that what makes those great generations are Again, those awful circumstances and the challenges that they grow up with. And the set of challenges we face is truly awesome in, in the most literal sense. Um, but also, it's not completely. I have to believe that if we can make it this far over 40,000 years as a species, that we can also stop kids from getting shot in school and stop our planet from catching on fire. Um, and it just takes common sense. 
And I know it can seem not too common these days, but ultimately common sense does have a tendency to prevail eventually, especially when a lot of the most insane people are uh, in their final years, frankly. Um, and Present company excluded. Yes, of course. Um, but yeah, I think, I think our generation, you know, what, what, what gave me a lot of hope too is talking to a lot of the young people who initially you know, did not agree with me whatsoever um, in shooting club, for example, but a lot of them, pretty much all of them that I've talked to at this point actually agree with me when they initially didn't. What's given me hope is that when I talk to people who say the most, I mean, you, you cannot even imagine some of the stuff that I've had sent to me and said to me. What's most rewarding in this work, though, that I've done, besides obviously seeing the fact that after the passage after Uvalde with the passage of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, over 500 people who are high risk have been stopped from buying assault rifles. And that includes here in Texas because of an expanded background check system that looks at basically like their behavioral records and other things. What gives, what's really rewarding to me is when I get a message from somebody who calls me some communist, you know, expletive, whatever, and I message them back. This was back before Elon Musk made it impossible to DM people without paying him $8. Um, and I say, you know, I can respect that you don't agree with me, Patriot 1776, you know. Um, and I can respect that you don't agree with me, but I can't accept the fact that there's nothing that we can do about this. And he's like, well, you're trying to take my guns away. And I was like, is there literally anything I could say to you at all that would change your mind? Could Jesus Christ himself come down right now and say, gun control works. Would that change your mind as a God-loving patriot? No. Okay, well, I'm not gonna have that conversation with you. Instead, let's focus on what we can agree on, which is the fact that you say we need more mental health funding. I agree. Let's get these guys more mental health funding. Okay, how about that? What else do you wanna talk about? Because I think there's actually a lot we agree on that you aren't even thinking about. Because I do agree we need more mental health funding, and it doesn't mean, I think we need to get out. For a long time, I was in this idea that you have to be in total alignment and agreement with everybody to be able to form a coalition with them. That is not how politics works. It is not. It creates strange bedfellows a lot of the time, and that's often when things actually happen. What, I, what we did after Uvalde was the, a lot of the movement said basically, like, look, we know that we need to do something. We all agree that we need to do something. Let's get something done. And we did. We passed the first gun law, even though it wasn't nearly as big as I would have liked it to be. It was a step. Before the Civil Rights Act, there was a smaller act that was passed before that, actually. That's not talked about as much. These are small steps that we take to show people that our political system, despite its many flaws, it can work, despite the filibuster, which should be abolished, make no mistake that we can make progress, that we can trust each other, and we're not mortal enemies. And you can pass a stronger gun law, and guess what? Even when you're a Republican who voted for it, you can get reelected too. That is what gives me hope, because when I talk to those people too, to finish this, when I talk to that, that patriot 1776 who says he loves guns, God, and his children in that order, <laughs> when I talk to him, and 99% of the time, Actually, 100% of the time, if they continue talking to me and not, don't just give up, they actually say, you know what, I'm sorry. And I actually agree with you. There were people after Uvalde, because I was obviously like talking to a lot of reporters and going on TV a lot, talking with other students and saying, basically, look, we all know that we don't agree on everything, but let's focus on what we can agree on and let's actually do something. 
I got dozens, if not hundreds of messages on Twitter from people that originally called me a crisis actor after Parkland that said, actually, I don't agree with everything that you say, but I do agree with you. We do need to do something. And I'm sorry for what I said in the past. And that reconciliation, turning that hatred into hope is the single most powerful thing I have ever witnessed in my life. Because it also makes that person feel like such a jerk. It's amazing. <laughs> so that's, that's why I'm hopeful. Kimberly? <laughs> that's for Carlton only. Um, I am hopeful because I know my daughter didn't die in vain. I look at the Rob Elementary survivors, including my son, who was also present that day, and I can see that they've lost so much, like so many school children across this country, and I know that they're going to take it the final stretch. Nice. Love it. <laughs> Pressure's on, Carlton. <laughs> For me, I'm hopeful because of the grassroots organizations, the community-based organizations, the, the community violence interruption programs. I think that when we look in at that socio-ecological model, we're so focused on the societal level, which is the very last level that we forget about the relational, the individual, and the community levels, right? It goes to what David said, you know, baby steps, right? Line upon line, precept upon precept. Start with the small, despise not small beginnings. And I love working with the young men that I work with on a community level, individual level, relationship level, because if I can stop them from perpetuating the violence and interrupt it right then and there, that's a win. Because it's one life at a time. So often we focus on the big picture and forget about when you put together a puzzle, you start with the corners. And it's one piece at a time, right? And how do we put these lives back together one life at a time? We have to put more funding into community-based organizations, into violence interruption and prevention programs. Uh, I don't believe that a young person needs to get into trouble in order to get resources and mentoring and support. Uh, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. I believe that if we catch it on the front end and invest more with uh, early warning systems in our education system, dismantling the school of prison pipeline and nexus, and giving the resources and looking at those indicators that show that our young adults are about to engage in a violent behavior, stop it right there, right? Let's not wait till something needs surgery and try to put a Band-Aid on it. That, that doesn't work. Let's get them right now on the individual level. I mean, I'm interrupting violence on a community level by working with individuals and dealing with relationships. They're not perpetuating the violence. So now if I stop one individual from doing it, guess what, how many victims would have been if I didn't interrupt it with him? And the next person, and the next person. So it's one life at a time. So I'm hopeful because you know, there's a lot of talk in, you know, the political realm, you know, in the funding realm about putting more funding and backing behind community-based organizations and violence interruption programs for individuals that are out there at the grassroots level interrupting this violence. Uh, currently just partnered with UT uh, Health and uh, Dr. Sandra McKay and Dr. Uh, Alex Tesla. And we're working with a hospital violence interruption program. Again, that's when the gunshot victim is at the hospital, how do I go in as a credible messenger and stop him from perpetuating that violence even more, right? How do I stop the bleeding there by giving them community-based resources? 
by helping them find a job, by providing mentorship, by getting them into post-secondary education opportunities and helping them dream again. Because again, a lot of the people who perpetuate violence are in survival mode. You know, so it's, it, it's a, a young man at home with a, with a single mother with brothers and sisters. She's working two or three jobs. The light's about to get cut off. He got access to a gun. Guess what, mom? I'm gonna go rob somebody. It's you or me. Is it right? No, but it gives me an understanding of why he's doing what he's doing. So that's part of the problem. That's the risk factor. The protective factor is now let me help him get a job. Let me get the resources that he needs to put him around him so he don't think the way that he's been thinking. Let me change his thinking. Let me do a hard reset. Control, alt, delete. Let's start over again. Let's reprogram. So at a community level and community-based organization level, we have to do two things simultaneously. Uproot weeds and plant seeds. Uproot weeds and plant seeds. I'm stopping you from thinking the way that you've been thinking because I understand that the iceberg model, your thoughts, your feelings, your beliefs, your emotions are beneath the surface. Everything that's affecting the way that you think, we can't see them. The, the victims and the perpetrators primarily of violence, you can't see what's making them think the way that they're thinking because it's beneath the surface. So now that's why I gotta do a cognitive approach. Let me help change your thinking because again, our actions are manifestations of our thoughts. Our thoughts are formed by what we see and what we hear. So let me stop you from seeing what you've been seeing and hearing what you've been hearing, put something new before your eyes and your ears to give you a new thought which would give you a new behavior. We need to invest in community violence interruption programs, grassroots organizations at a community level who are interrupting violence and helping transform lives. That's why I'm hopeful. Thanks, Carlson. Keep that applause going as uh, you thank our panelists, Mr. Carlton Harris, for Lexi, Miss Kimberly Rubio, Mr. David Hogg, Dr. Bendy Mathera, and Jeff Temple. Thank y'all very much. And uh, now let's uh, uh, please stay on the stage, and we're going to have a time of reflection offered by DeCamera Young Artist and Texas Poet Laureate and Galveston native Lupe Mendez.
buenas noches. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, all of you, thank you for your voices, and thank you for your music. Um, on a lighter note, this will be the first time I have accepted my old age. <laughs> and we'll be using readers. <clears throat> um, the title of this poem, when I hear that they want to let teachers carry guns, uh, I have taught uh, for 23 years. Um, I'm the previously serving Texas Poet Laureate. Uh, while carrying a day job as a teacher, I've taught from K to college. Um, May 18th of 2018 was the Santa Fe High School shooting. Um, I was teaching at Cristo Rey Jesuit on the south side of town. And it was our field day. And uh, in the middle of a break, uh, several students came in with another young lady who was in tears, trembling, and fell on my classroom floor. And come to find out that she was uh, the cousin of one of the lives taken at the Santa Fe High School shooting. Um, the next day, we sat in class, and I asked the kids if they wanted to do the lesson or if they wanted to talk. And every single period, I taught five periods, uh, every single class said they wanted to talk. In one of the classes, uh, one of my students said, Maestro, if that were to happen here, would you take a bullet for us? And I hesitated for a quick second, only to gather my breath and say, yes, that's why I got certified. It's part of the job. It wasn't a part of the job in the year that I got my certification, but it is now. Um, another student in a different class asked, Mr. If they pass that law where they're gonna let teachers carry guns would you be able to have a gun and hold it against another student who might provide violence to the rest of your class? And I said, if that was the day that they take me, that would also mean they would have to take my certificate because I didn't get into this job to have a gun and then hold it at another kid, regardless of whether or not that kid came in to do what they were going to do. Um, To answer your question about what, what's my part in the lane, I think it's that. Um, in the last, since October, I think I've lost two former students to gun violence and one current student to suicide. Um, to all the parents of school-aged children, to any one of us that have lost someone to gun violence, it is a heavy heart and a hole to fill, and I have looked to my students to see the way that they carry themselves and what both reconciliation and resiliency looks like, and it's breathtaking. When I hear that they want to let teachers carry guns, one, a knuckle pops in my throat a, a moment, a student, an 18-year-old asks me, Maestro, would you take a bullet for me? And my classroom is an empty house at the words leaving his mouth. My solar plexus caves, I say, mijito, I decided that the moment I bubbled in the first multiple choice question in my certification exam 18 years ago. 
I've been waiting for you to ask this question, and I hope I pass this test. Two, Mr. Mendes has a class of 35 students in a temporary building facing the playground. The entrance to the playground is at the far corner. A man in a peacoat enters at the corner with a gun. An announcement breaks over the loudspeaker, quote, Mr. Red is in the building, end quote. What should Mr. Mendes do? A, tell all the children to hold their breaths. Think of air, of floating around in sunlight. B, tell the kids to count the number of times they hear a footstep, a click, a bang, a body. C, tell them, freeze. Exactly as you are, grip this poem, a pulse across your temples, or D. Turn out the lights. Hide the children in the books they picked up that last library visit. Three. And someone says, quote, give the teachers guns, end quote. I stumble and shatter into slivers of voice box and wails, mi salon es una casa. Do you want us to speak into an empty house? Four. When time comes, if time comes, I will put all of you students in my pockets. When one doesn't fit, I will stitch another pocket on this one, dead center on my heart, and hope that if that's the one that aims at me, that this is where we will be, that I am taken as I am. The gun I want is in the shape of a book. It's pages, the only shell casings I need ever covering my floor. Mil gracias. Let's share our gratitude to everyone who um, expressed their words and art uh, tonight. One more time. So this concludes our program this evening. I wish you all a very safe trip home. Stop by the art installation outside if you haven't already. And we hope to see you back here at the chapel again soon. Have a good night.